Hi there, this is Scholar Minor, a podcast about myth, magic, and occasional miscellany. My name is Ursula, I'm your host and fellow learning enthusiast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you are all staying safe and healthy. As I'm taking care of the final touches before this episode airs, one of my cats is napping sweetly on my lap. This peaceful scene is a far cry from five minutes ago. He was tearing around the house at full speed, perhaps fleeing from some supernatural threat invisible to my human eyes. I'm sure every cat owner has experienced this occasional maniacal behavior, usually occurring just as you're falling asleep or a good hour before your alarm clock rings. My point is, non-human animals do some strange and inexplicable things, and since mankind first became aware of the world we lived in, we've been trying to understand the other creatures that exist alongside us. The language barrier, obviously, has been a bit of a holdup in that process. So through observation and storytelling, humanity has assigned meanings to animals and sought to nail down the motivations for their behavior. Tonight, we'll dive into this human desire to crack the code of the animal kingdom and talk a bit about the birth of the bestiaries. Our journey begins in the 4th century BCE with the publication of Aristotle's Historia Animalium, or History of Animals. Aristotle, an ancient Greek philosopher, published this incredible work based on his own eyewitness accounts of the characteristics and behaviors of animals. This work is incredibly influential, so much so that Aristotle is still considered the father of zoology, the scientific study of the structure, evolution, classification, and physiology of the animal kingdom. The information presented in Historia Animalium is in large part similar to what one might encounter in a biology textbook today. Including humans alongside the other creatures in nature, Aristotle discusses various habits and social behaviors he's observed, including analysis of non-human animals for signs of intelligence. Large parts of the work are devoted to anatomy, analyzing everything from the purpose of flippers to the functions of reproductive organs. It's important to note here that Historia Animalium approaches understanding the animal kingdom from a perspective that we today would be able to recognize immediately as scientific. As we'll begin to see, later works organizing animals and chronicling their behavior become stranger and stranger until we reach the very strange medieval bestiary. Gaius Plinius Secundus, more commonly known as Pliny the Elder, wrote his own Naturalis Historia, or Natural History, around 77 CE in ancient Rome. Quick side note, Pliny the Elder is also an excellent double IPA from California brewery Russian River Brewing Company. But before he was inspiring great brews, Pliny was putting together an incredible amount of information for Naturalis Historia. In his own words, I have included in 36 books 20,000 topics, all worthy of attention, gained by the perusal of about 2,000 volumes, of which only a few are in the hands of the studious, on account of the obscurity of the subjects procured by the careful perusal of 100 select authors, 
and to these I have made considerable additions of things, which were either not known to my predecessors, or which have been lately discovered. Pliny then adds the following disclaimer, echoing the sentiments of many modern-day workaholics and night owls, myself included. Nor can I doubt that there still remain many things which I have omitted, for I am a mere mortal, and one that has many occupations. I have, therefore, been obliged to compose this work at interrupted intervals, indeed during the night, so that you will find I have not been idle even during this period. Sound familiar? Pliny's work is definitely different from Aristotle's in some pretty significant ways. Pliny's Naturalis Historia dives deep into herb lore and remedies of the time, and in a trend that you'll see again in future as we encounter historical medical literature, the true and the perhaps not so true are often presented in the same place. To further confuse matters for modern readers, some information merits a little more reading between the lines than we're used to. Let's take a look at an example from Book 24 of Naturalis Historia titled The Antipathies and Sympathies Which Exist Among Trees and Plants. Pliny informs us, There is a mortal feud existing between the cabbage and the vine, and the cabbage itself, so shunned as it is by the vine, will wither immediately if planted in the vicinity of a cyclamen or of an origanum. At first glance, it's easy to think, well, no, plants don't wither because they hate each other, Pliny. But what Pliny is telling us here is that cabbage will not grow in the same soil as the vine, albeit in a creative and personifying way. The vine may be thriving in stony soil, but if you plant a cabbage there, it won't do well. A lot of Pliny's observations hold up. Some, not so much. For example, we find the following information in chapter 20, Remedies Derived from the Dragon. Some historians believe that Pliny may be referring to a non-venomous snake rather than a dragon dragon. Either way, he tells us that the dragon's eye dried and beaten up with honey form a liniment which is an effectual preservative against the terrors of specters by night. He adds that the fat adhering to the dragon's heart attached to the arm with a deer's sinews in the skin of a gazelle will ensure success in lawsuits, it is said. These additions to Pliny's work on natural history start us down the direction of the bestiary. Aristotle's zoology was scientific and unadorned. Handed down remedies and myth were peppered into Pliny's writings, though it did include a lot of useful knowledge. These were attempts at understanding the natural world. Pliny's work would inspire bestiaries and medical practitioners for hundreds of years, but our most direct descendant of the bestiary appeared sometime between the 2nd and 4th century CE, when an unknown author, probably in Alexandria, Egypt, published what is known as the Greek Physiologus. Like Aristotle's Historia Animalium and Pliny's Naturalis Historia, the Physiologus profiled a variety of plants and animals, it also included writings on minerals and stones. The physiologists, however, included mythical animals, such as the phoenix, the siren, the onocentaur, a donkey centaur, and the aspidocalone, a legendary sea monster so large it was often mistaken for an island. The physiologists also introduced Christian allegory to the chronicling of animals, which is one of the hallmarks of the medieval bestiary. 
Allegories, or stories that represent a different or hidden meaning, are reflected in the descriptions and behaviors of the physiologist creatures. The entries also include anecdotes further demonstrating the symbolic qualities of their subject. The physiologist tells us, for example, that the phoenix rises from the ashes on the third day after burning to death in a representation of Jesus' resurrection. We also find the story of the unicorn, which is an allegory for the incarnation, the holy conception, of Jesus. The unicorn, the physiologist explains, will only allow itself to be captured in the lap of a virgin. When it started circulating in Europe, the physiologist was a smash hit. This work was so popular that it was translated from its original Greek into a multitude of languages, including Old English, Old High German, Flemish, Dutch, Old French, Middle English, Italian, Romanian, Icelandic, and Serbian. The earliest copies that exist today are Latin translations, and they are the predecessors of the medieval bestiary. Copies of the Physiologus and of later bestiaries and other texts were crafted painstakingly by hand by Christian monks in large writing rooms called scriptoriums. The text was copied in a neat script known as minuscule, a calligraphic writing standard intended to ensure the works would be legible for anyone literate in Latin, regardless of their region. These scriptoriums were the sole producers of books in Europe from roughly the 5th to the 13th centuries. Monks worked in silence and only during the daytime, as having candles or any sources of fire in the room could be a disaster. The manuscripts themselves were made of parchment or vellum. Parchment and vellum are animal skins that have been cleaned, stretched taut on a wooden frame, and scraped in order to obtain their desired thickness or thinness. To create additional tension, the skin was moistened and allowed to dry over and over again. Vellum differs from parchment in that it was specifically made using calf skin, which was considered higher quality than standard parchment. A small piece of metal resembling a nail would be used to mark lines on the parchment prior to copying to ensure straight writing. Monks used trimmed reeds or feather quills. Their ink was made from various natural sources including soot, oak galls, or boiled iron. The colored paints used in illustrations were made by mixing egg with minerals or plants, such as lapis lazuli or woad for blue, cinnabar for red, and even purple from some varieties of sea mollusks. You've likely heard the term illuminated manuscript, which generally refers to the use of gold foil in the illustrations. To achieve this effect, pieces of gold were either hammered out until paper thin and applied to the page, or powdered and mixed with a glue derived from animal bone, usually fish. The illustrations of these manuscripts are wonderful and elaborate. One of our oldest existing copies of the Physiologus, the Burn Physiologus, was created in the 9th century. The script is neat and crisp, the figures richly illustrated in reds and blues. They often appear with no background, and appear to be living in the pages of the manuscript itself. In an analysis of the Burn Physiologus, published in 1930, Helen Woodruff describes the manuscript's artistic style. The sky, she writes, is frequently marked with bands of color, the choice of colors and their arrangement suggesting different hours of the day, as dawn or sunset. Shadows, both in blue and brown, and light falling from a single angle lend an illusionistic aspect to the scenes. 
Some of the trees are naturalistic in their rendering, others have assumed more conventional forms. The animals show no hesitation in drawing and were evidently based on clearly defined models. Particularly, it should be noticed that the figures and animals dominate the landscape and are actually too large in scale to give the impression of existence within real space. From the immense popularity of the Physiologus emerged the medieval bestiary. These manuscripts are beautiful, and some incredible organizations have made them available to the public online in their entirety. The Aberdeen Bestiary was created around 1200 CE in England. In the 1990s, the University of Aberdeen painstakingly photographed every page and transcribed and translated all text into modern English. The photographs were retaken in 2015 with incredible quality, and the full manuscript is available to view through the University of Aberdeen website. I'll include that site in the show notes. Medieval bestiaries, like the Aberdeen bestiary, included profiles of both real and mythological animals. We find descriptions of the bird-reptile hybrid of Harry Potter fame, the basilisk, which can kill you by looking at you, but can be defeated by the humble weasel, we also encounter the unicorn, of course, and the manticore, a four-legged human-eating beast with the head of a man, three rows of teeth, and the tail of a scorpion. Like the physiologists that preceded it, bestiaries applied Christian allegory to many of the creatures it described. The Aberdeen bestiary, for example, tells us that the panther has a naturally gentle nature, comparing it to Jesus Christ. It explains that when the panther is sated from a meal, it retreats to its den to rest. Then, on the third day, the panther rises from its sleep and gives a great cry, emitting a sweet odor, just like our Lord Jesus Christ rising again from the dead. The Aberdeen bestiary then informs us that the sweet odor comes from the panther's mouth, comparing this to people choosing to follow Jesus after hearing him speak. Manuscripts like the Aberdeen Bestiary and the 13th century Ashmole Bestiary, also available online, usually begin with a Spark Notes version of the Christian Bible's Book of Genesis, often with special emphasis placed on Adam's naming of the animals. Some bestiaries also included references to the works of Aristotle and Pliny that we discussed earlier, with comments added regarding Christian symbolism. Bestiaries reached the height of their popularity in the 13th and 14th centuries, circulating widely throughout Europe. There are around 130 bestiary manuscripts still around today. Their illustrations are some of the most wonderful existing examples of medieval art and influenced work in many other mediums, especially stained glass. One of the strangest things about bestiaries is that many of the monks creating these illustrations had not actually encountered the majority of the animals that they were illustrating and describing, relying solely on word of mouth, so we get some truly bizarre and creative interpretations. Take for example the description of the humble hedgehog that we find in the Aberdeen bestiary. The hedgehog is covered in prickles. From this it gets its name, because it bristles, when it is enclosed in its prickles and is protected by them on all sides against attack. For as soon as it senses anything, it first bristles, then, rolling itself into a ball, regains its courage behind its armor. Sounds fairly accurate, right? However, the description is concluded with the following. 
The hedgehog has a certain kind of foresight. As it tears off a grape, it rolls backwards on it and so delivers it to its young. Sure enough, we see a beautiful illustration of seven little hedgehogs frolicking beneath a gracefully curving blue and red tree against a gold illuminated background. And impaled on their little spines are, well, grapes. I think that the adorable image of hedgehogs with grapes stuck on their spines for convenient transport is a good note to end on. I'm so glad that you joined me, and I hope you're all hanging in there. Before you go, thanks again for listening. You can check out www.ursaminorcreations.com for additional content. And Scholar Minor is now available for subscription most places you can find podcasts, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We talked about a lot of really cool source materials this evening, so I'll make a special section in the notes with links to those. I highly recommend checking them out, especially the Aberdeen Bestiary. It is an incredible project and really magical to look through. Thanks again, everyone, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. <laughs>